Cameron says why Britain should bomb Syria, but are the lawyers on his side? We shouldn't be content with outsourcing our security to our allies. Russia says why it will not bomb Turkey. Why isn't Whitehall talking about Al-Qaeda? Is climate change the world's biggest enemy? And the man who made the military think again. If not now, when? That's the question the Prime Minister put to MPs in the Commons earlier when he appealed for them to back British airstrikes against IS in Syria. The Prime Minister said the UK could not afford to stand aside from the fight and it was morally unacceptable to leave the US, France and other allies to carry the burden. We shouldn't be content with outsourcing our security to our allies. If we believe that action can help protect us, then with our allies... We should be part of that action, not standing aside from it. And from this moral point comes a fundamental question. If we won't act now, when our friend and ally France has been struck in this way, then our allies in the world can be forgiven for asking, if not now... When? Well, I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Clark, David Cameron has said that by bombing Syria, the UK would make a military difference to the war against Assad and IS. What would that difference be? Well, in political terms, it would make some difference because um, Britain is an important country in the coalition behind the United States. And by not bombing in Syria, by restricting the war only to Iraq, it looks as if we're half-hearted. So there's a political point to be made here. In military terms, the amount of bombing that we could add, the number of targets we could cover isn't going to make a dramatic difference, except that, as the Prime Minister pointed out, because we've got... Uh, brimstone uh, as weapon systems we've got very good ice star we we can bomb very precisely which a lot of the other coalition allies can't and which the russians certainly are not doing by design in other parts of the battlefront so there's there's a, a, a marginal military difference but it's effectively a political statement that's being made a marginal military difference so if we didn't bomb do you think anyone would really miss us uh, militarily no um, the, you, we're not going to add anything that will create a step change, and that's no disrespect to the RAF, but we've got eight aircraft operating from Aquatir in Cyprus. That, in reality, means two sorties a day, and I don't think it's any secret that those aircraft are bringing back their weapons more often than they, they're releasing them because they can't identify the target carefully enough, precisely enough, to make sure there's no collateral damage. Now, if, if, they, if we extend those two sorties a day to Syria then there are more targets in Syria, so it may well be that the aircraft would be uh, using their weapons rather than bringing them back more often. Um, but even that, is, in terms of the number of targets that need to be hit in order to shape the battlefield, somebody on the ground to go and sweep ISIL up, um, the difference is still marginal. Christopher Lee, what other ways do we make a contribution without joining the bombing campaign? In the air, I think probably the leading one is reconnaissance and intelligence gathering. And that is extraordinarily important. You cannot mount an operation, certainly not on day-by-day operation, without reconnaissance and intelligence. And also the network, the wiring diagram, to get it back to the, the, the people that might need it as well. And that, I think, is probably the leading, leading role. Professor Michael Clark, do you think this is all about, really, status bombing, that, that we should do it because everyone else is? 
Uh, well, funnily enough, you know, although the, the coalition is 65 nations strong, it's surprising how few nations are involved in the air campaign. The United States is there, France is there, but, you know, you can ask a question, when was the last time that some of the Gulf allies flew a mission? When was the last time the Jordanians flew a mission? Um, there when are is the last time? Uh, uh, well, I'm not certain, but I think the answer is some months ago. I mean, not days ago, but months ago. Well, the Saudi uh, Arabians are busy in Yemen, aren't they? Absolutely. Everyone's fighting their own wars. So uh, you, you've got this problem that this, this huge coalition is actually doing very little behind the Americans who are doing 90% of everything that is, that is, that is happening. Mm. So, um, you know, there, there are things that the UK can contribute. I mean, as Chris says, we, we contribute a lot to the I-Star already. We're already doing that over Syria. So, I mean, we're doing everything over Syria apart from dropping bombs or, or firing missiles. And when we do start dropping bombs and firing missiles, as I'm sure we will, the difference will be very small in, in real terms. Just supposing, Christopher, that this vote uh, is, takes place uh, in the next week or so and it, it goes ahead as the Prime Minister wants, will it simply just be a case of saying, yes, let's do it, or are there specific preparations on the ground that need to be done in some way? Um, yes, you've got to make sure, for example, you've got to sustain, you can sustain uh, any operation like this. The, the RAF has a limited number of assets that it can keep going for a long, long time. And don't forget, it's still got the Iraqi operation to run as well. And so we, we have a limited number of aircraft, and it is a common thing to find that the pilot uh, gets ready for a sortie, and he can't drive his aircraft, and he's got to go and have a look for another one for, that is ready. That doesn't mean so they're all falling apart, but you know, it is an operation where you've got to be really on the button about what you're doing. And therefore, it is quite an organisation just to get the right number of aircraft that not only can fly, but can keep flying. Professor uh, Michael Clark, um, what do you think the timetable will be for developments? In parliamentary terms, I mean, the Prime Minister's made his case today in response to the Foreign Affairs Committee report. So that was an easy sort of useful, that was a useful moment, as it were. He had to respond, so that gave him the, the hook on which to hang the argument. And so the idea is that there'll be a lot of discussion over the weekend, and you're first in the, you're first in the queue in terms of the media in discussing this. So well done. Um, so there'll be lots of discussion over the weekend, and there will be a vote on present expectations next week. Now, well, you would normally say probably Thursday next week might come forward to Tuesday unless something happens over the weekend to change the timing. OK, well, let's now talk about the legalities of this, and here is what the Prime Minister had to say. It's a long-standing constitutional convention that we don't publish our formal legal advice. But the document I've published today shows in some detail the clear legal basis for military action against ISIL in Syria. It's founded on the right of self-defence, as recognised in Article 51 of the United Nations Charter. The right of self-defence may be exercised individually, where it is necessary to the UK's own defence, and, of course, collectively in the defence of our friends and allies. Mr Speaker, the main basis of the Global Coalition's actions against ISIL in Syria is the collective self-defence of Iraq. Um, Christopher Lee, David Cameron's certain that the bombing would be legal. The man to tell him that would be his Attorney General. What is the legal advice? Well, you, you start with Article 51, as the Prime Minister was saying that, but that's got more codicils attached to it than the Duke's <laughs> ancestry, quite frankly. Um, you have to have reasonable grounds for bombing, and you have them if another country is bombing you, that's obvious. If another country is threatening you and asks you should, or is being threatened itself and asks for help, if another country, or perhaps an element in that country, and here we're talking, let's say, something like ISIS, uh, are ruled to be threatening you, and important, you've got the UN security uh, um, resolutions as well that says, OK, you go ahead. Now, what the 
I suspect the attorney, having gone through this at some length, I suspect what the attorney is is leaping on is 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 Codus Hell. I think it's something like thirty seven A, that a member state of the United Nations has an obligation to make sure that no group on its territory, i.e. ISIS, threatens the people of a territory of another country. Now, that sounds... Got it sewn up, isn't it? Mm. ISIS is threatening. It's in Syria at the moment. There we, go, we can go it. But there's another codicil in that same, same resolution which says, uh, if that country, i.e. Syria, it can't attack ISIS, uh, or doesn't wish to even, that is not grounds enough for anyone to bomb Syria, and that is the difficulty. So it's a matter, as ever it is with me learned friend, a question of interpretation. <laughs> well, on Monday, the government published the Strategic Defence and Security Review. This is not a defence budget. It's a review of the equipment and formations that British forces have or need to have to guarantee British foreign policy. Professor Michael Clark, in short, uh, does military capability match the ambitions for foreign policy? Um, not yet, but it will do. I mean, what the review effectively was doing on Monday was putting the 2010 review back on track. I mean, we know that that 2010 review, in a sense, looked forward to 2020, looked 10 years ahead and said, this is the force structure we want in 2020. That's been blown off course a bit. This review gets it back on track and pushes out another five years. So we're talking now about future force 2025. And I think the headline on all of that is it's a fairly ambitious force structure. So we are preparing to both go to major wars, though in small numbers, small numbers of systems and platforms and personnel, but also to deal with counter-terrorism. The thing that's interesting in this review, there's hardly, I don't think there's any mention of counterinsurgency. Counterinsurgency in this review has all become counter-terrorism. It's quite a good review. It's been, it's much more integrated than previous reviews. It has been driven from the centre, not from the Ministry of Defence, but it Mm -hmm. has been done in the National Security Council. So it's pretty good. It's ambitious, but we will not see any any real step change in capacities until 2020 and thereafter. So, so from that, I take good, good, but could do better. Is that right, Professor? Well, could could only have done better with a fair bit more money. The fact is, I mean, the, the government has made a lot of the money it's putting into defence as a result of all the election commitment, and that's quite interesting in itself. But the fact is, in the longer term, defence is still struggling. I mean, the expenditure on defence between now and 2025 is going to fall back to more or less where it was in the period 1998 1998 to about 2008. So Mm -hmm. before the economic crisis, that average, you know, 1% increase per year in real terms in defence is more or less what we're going back to. No great step changes. All right, Professor Michael Clark, thanks for the moment. We'll talk to you later in the programme. Stay with us. The high-stakes story this week must have been the shooting down of a Russian Air Force jet by a Turkish F-16. The Turks claimed the Russian plane entered Turkish airspace. The Russians said it didn't. Putin said it was a stab in the back by the Turks who supported terrorism. Well, former Kremlin advisor Alexander Nekrasov is on the line. A good speech to you today. What, what were the signs that there was never going to be a military response by Russia to this incident? Uh, hello. Well, basically, practically a couple of hours after the incident, not several hours at least, the official spokesman, Kremlin spokesman, came out and said there will be no military retaliation. So that was made pretty clear very quickly on the same day. And I, I would be you know, doubting very much that any military response will take place. Uh, um, to punish Turkey. The problem is here, of course, is that the Russians view this incident as um, having been given a green light by Washington and NATO, because um, no way would um, Turkey decide to shoot down a Russian plane on on their own. 
you know, it's, it's, it's such a major decision in a very, very volatile region mm. that, of course, there were obvious consultations beforehand. Mm. And um, the Russians suspect that uh, the Turks got a green light from Washington. So, Christopher, do Christopher Lee, do, do you agree with that? Do you think that that had the blessing of Washington and NATO allies? Well, it may not have had the blessing, blessing in as much that you'd say, listen, if you get the opportunity to go, you know, go for one. Um, it would have been good to have been at the morning briefing for the, for the air crew, mm. which would have included instructions on rules of engagement, what to, what to do and what, 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 happen, what happens next. I think the, the most important thing about this is that this is not Turkey suddenly coming up on a day and searching out an aircraft to shoot down. It, it, it has shot down a, a, a Syrian aircraft before. This is a long-standing and a complex relationship between Turkey and Russia, which includes... The, uh, the the Russia's attitude attitude towards the Turkmen, who live beneath the area that they were bombing, um, who are Turkish uh, ancestry, and it is a, also a very important uh, thing to remember that after Ukraine got running and the Russians re- regained Crimea, that the Turks objected to that because Turkey is not just facing onto Syria; it's up into the Black Sea, and there have been some constant, constant flybys by Russian aircraft in that area. Alexander Nikrasov, in Moscow, how do you think President Putin comes out of all of this? Well, it's difficult to say at the moment how the situation will develop. Uh, President Putin is meeting President Hollande in a few, I think, in about 20 minutes or something. Uh, They're going to discuss the situation. Hollande is at the moment playing sort of a part of a middleman. He's uh, flying between capitals. And um, but uh, the point is, of course, that it's very important to keep a cool head in this dangerous situation. And what worries me personally is that I hear all these um, patriotic, I would say, in inverted commas, calls in Russia to punish Turkey, to stop trade, to, to cut off this, and so on and so on and so on, which is not a good idea. You know, Russia is not in a state uh, with its economy in trouble and so on. To what would you be advising like- yourself? Well, I would I would advise to keep calm and try to to you know to find a solution. Probably nudge nudge Turkey to say something uh, about this situation because President Putin was uh, pointing out that Turkey gave no explanation to the Russians what happened, uh, provided you know refused to discuss it really and uh, uh, refused outright to apologize. Now, in my opinion, it was an outrageous thing to do on the part of Turkey. Turkey violates. Syrian airspace practically daily. Turkey violates airspaces of Greece daily and so on. And uh, obviously there was absolutely crystal clear, it was crystal clear that this plane did not pose any danger to Turkey at all. They knew perfectly well mm. that this, what these planes were doing. So this incident itself, I think, was a very dangerous, very wrong decision. But as I said already, I think that, you know, the green light was coming from another part of the world to do this, because Erdogan is not mad. Christopher, you know, briefly. He, he can be, he can be think, a tyrant in a sense, but he's not stupid. I think he the was, most important part at the moment, or thing can be done, is to make sure the repatriated body of the pilot gets to Moscow as soon as possible and have a proper and honourable burial. Christopher, stay with us. Alexander Nekrasov, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Sit rap with Kate Chubb.
Still to come, forget IS, is climate change the biggest threat of all? And Professor Michael Clark bids farewell to Rusi. This is BFBS. The Prime Minister today made ISIL the focus of his reason to get involved in the bombing of Syria. The atrocity in Paris on Friday the 13th of November concentrated on the powers and ambitions of IS. But what Downing Street seems to be ignoring, at least publicly, is that intelligence agencies are insisting that the longer-term threat is al-Qaeda. Well, Abdel Bari Atwan is the London-based editor of Al-Rai Al-Yum, the Arab digital news organisation. Good to speak to you today. Um, Do Al-Qaeda and IS have the same ambitions? Do they believe the same thing? Yes and no in the same time. When I say yes, yes, both of them actually have the same strategy, the same ideology, which is to fight the West and to actually establish the caliphate. But the tactic, the strategy is different. Uh, The Islamic State would like to grab land consolidate its actually grip on it and after that expand regionally that's why actually they have half of syria and half of iraq under their disposal and you know this is the border of their state now for the time being al-qaeda is different style they usually their strategy is to hit and run to go and bomb in Paris and New York and London uh, and take revenge from uh, the Western infidels, as they call them. So they are different, definitely. We know that Al-Qaeda is actually fading. It's not really as strong as it used to be, say, 20 years ago. But Islamic State is actually on the rise. They have more than, uh, you know, between 50,000 to 100,000 fighters under their wings. And also, it is a proper state, whether we like it or not. And it is the hardcore of Al-Qaeda, ex-Republican guards of Saddam Hussein. So they have the experience, military experience and administrative experience at the same time. Christopher Lee, Al-Qaeda is fading. uh, Al-Qaeda is fading in how it's operating at the moment. Um, A state run by an organisation, let's say IS, if it is a state, is actually far more easily defeated than somebody, uh, as Abdel Bariat one describes Al-Qaeda, as hit and run, which is a far more effective way of fighting in that area in the present circumstances. The other thing, of course, is that Al-Qaeda, sort of when it moved to Yemen, uh, set up what was a very, very uh, complex organisation, but it's taken some hits of its own. But I would say that in the longer term, Al-Qaeda could be with the world of terrorism, of hit and run, for far, far more longer than IS. Abdel Atwan, what do you see as the greater threat longer term? Is it Al-Qaeda or, or is it IS? Well, I believe IS, yes. It is uh, a long-term threat. Uh, to the region and also to the international community. Why? Because they are expanding now, not only on the Middle East, but even in in, uh, North Africa. They have branches now in Libya, they have a branch in Sinai in Egypt, they have a branch in Somalia, they have a branch in Afghanistan, they have a a branch also in Pakistan. Yes, uh, maybe Al-Qaeda is consolidating its bases in Yemen. I agree completely. Uh, But but again, it's not really, it's not... uh, it is on the down, um, uh, you know, uh, downside. It's not really rising. And uh, we have to remember that Al-Qaeda for the last three years or five years even, they, they never had a proper attack outside Yemen or outside Afghanistan. I know it's very, very difficult to, to sort of generalize in all of this uh, because it's an extremely complicated situation. But can you say sort of overall um, 
Al-Qaeda and IS, how, how they view each other, how much cooperation or enmity is, is there between the two? There are definitely a lot of rivalries between both sides, between Al-Qaeda and between the Islamic State. Al-Qaeda considers itself, it is the original ideology, it is the original, actually, uh, force fighting the West. Um, and they have a branch now in Syria which called Al-Nusra Brigade. But actually they are not, as, as I said, they are not as strong as the Islamic State because Islamic State, definitely they have a state, they have their currency, they have their flag, they have fighters, they have police, they have uh, services to run electricity, water, exporting oil, but when it comes to al-Nusra, it is actually dependent on other. Uh, al uh, Islamic State is self-sufficient financially, they have a lot of money selling oil and also looting the Iraqi banks and Syrian banks. They, have, uh, they are self-sufficient when it comes to military-wise, they manage to capture a lot of uh, weapons, uh, you know, armored vehicles, uh, from the Iraqi army and when they defeated them in, in, in Mosul uh, and also in Rekha uh, from the Syrian army, I mean. So also, you know, we have to remember that they are using or manipulating their social media in a very, very, very strong way. You know, mm. they are, they have their military, their, sorry, they have their media arm, which is very, very strong. And they are doing extremely well and outfoxing many, many of the intelligence service when it comes to the use of the, the social media to their own interest, recruit, recruiting and, you know, uh, brainwashing a lot of young people all over the Muslim world. All right. Abdelbari Adwan, there we'll leave it. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, next week, Paris goes on the biggest security lockdown of its year. World presidents and prime ministers will be joining politicians, scientists, lawyers and campaigners for the biggest ever conference on climate change. Uh, Christopher, why are they doing this and what are they doing exactly? The United Nations is the lead agency in the study and the recommendations about climate change. Uh, climate change is a reality. Uh, there are very few deniers that have, uh, have any credibility. And what is happening at the moment is that 150 minimum uh, countries are going to Paris and they are being asked to say, what is it, in practical terms, rather than just statements, what is in practical statements that your country is preparing to do for the next 10 years that will actually reduce not simply the amount of carbon dioxide in the, in, in, in the atmosphere, but, but everything else that resolves around this question of global warming, which can cause so much more of a calamity than even ISIS and al-Qaeda. Well, Professor Michael Clark is joining us from the Royal United Services Institute, and, and not just about icebergs and sandstorms, is it? No, not at all. I mean, one of the things that we look at is whether there's a transmission mechanism between... Um, environmental change and security. And of course, you, you, you see it all over the world. I mean, the greatest example I know of is the Himalayan glaciers. You know, 1.3 billion people take their water from all the glaciers in the Himalayas, and that, that covers 10 major river systems. So, you know, the Indus, the Irrawaddy, the Yellow River, the Yangtze River, the Ganges, the Mekong, all these great Asian rivers. Now, if the glaciers are going to disappear within a couple of generations, which is what the International Panel on Climate Change predicts, if that is the case, then those people will be subjected to catastrophic floods on a regular basis, followed by endless drought. And if that starts to happen, quite apart from the human misery we're talking about, they will move. And if large proportions of 1.2, 1.3 billion people start to move, there is a security problem right there. So it's, you don't have to look far to see where these transmission mechanisms might be between environmental stress and insecurity. It's a big mm. issue.
Let's talk about you now, Michael. Uh, for almost a decade, Michael Clark has been joining us on the programme as the Director General of RUSI, and this is his last week in the job. Um, Michael, when, when you started at RUSI, you told this programme that the only way to get a perspective of the security of the world and Britain's place in it was to set up big adventures of research to find out what was really going on in politics, military, diplomacy. Did it work? <laughs> yes. Well, I'd like, to, I'd like to hope so. Um, yeah, we, um, we do a lot of research at Rusi, and, and in order to get a handle on it, you, you, you know, one can follow it by reading the newspapers or by listening to the news and so on. That's fine. But, of course, there's always an inside story, and the dynamics of security, like any other area of policy, are partly driven by personalities, partly driven by political ambition, partly driven by purely accidental factors. And when you're hanging around the bazaars of Whitehall and Westminster, as Chris Lee and I have been doing for far too many years, you do get an instinct for what these other drivers are. They're, not, they're, they're sometimes not the main drivers, but you never really understand the policy unless you those in, informal drivers. Hey, hey, Michael, I know, I know it's your last week in the job and you're fading us on the line uh, now, but you're definitely worth still listening to. <laughs> How has the world well, changed okay. during your time? Oh, well, I, I started this job in 2007 and everything seemed reasonably stable. In 2008, we had a change of prime minister from Tony Blair to Gordon Brown. And then the economic crisis hit, 2008, which became very political in a couple of years later. Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, which began a period of Russian revanchism. 2010, the Arab Spring, opening down the Middle East in front of our eyes. So in the years that I've been here, I've seen the neighbourhood of European countries uh, become much less secure and prosperous than it was. And, you know, we, we, we find that the security dialogue these days covers so many more things so you know we, we look at financial crime we look at organized um crime uh, financial crime serious organized crime border force issues energy security all those things are relevant as well as the future of china relations with india and china and so on so mm. there's a huge spectrum of security that we need to cover these days so it's never been a better time i have to say to be a young researcher unfortunately i'm not anymore but for young researchers, this is a wonderful time to be doing it. Christopher, I mean, you, you've been to many of the, the, the debates and the, the events at the Royal United Services Institute. What kind of contribution do you think it's made to the military and defence? I really do think that from almost the day that um, Mike took over, and with this idea right. that you had to turn uh, RUSI into very much a research foundation, you had to have more definition more understanding, but certainly definition. It wasn't just a bunch of old Indian army relics sort of standing up and saying, well, you know, the whole world's gone to death in a handbasket. <laughs> um, what he's done, he's turned it into an even more uh, recognisable and better recognised international institute. And uh, I mean, it's about time he went, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> That's a nice goodbye, isn't it? I was just interested, though, uh, Professor Clark. I mean, have you ever been tempted yourself? I mean, obviously, you're interested in defence and the military. Did you ever want to be uh, in active service yourself? I, yeah, I thought about it as a student. I was thinking of a short service commission. And somebody said to me, no, go for, go, don't go for the army. Go for the Marines. They'll kill you. <laughs> um, and then it turned out I was short-sighted. And uh, so it didn't really happen. And, I, and then I decided I was going to be a journalist instead. And that didn't happen either. So mm. I became an academic. Uh, and what's next for you? 
Off fishing oh, or, or sailing, I'm, would it be? I'm a bit of sailing, yes, but I'm basically I'm going to stay at home and disapprove of everything. <laughs> I, shall, I shall write letters to the Times, I expect. I'm, I'm sure you will, and, and we look forward to talking to you in future. Professor Michael Clark, um, very good talking to you over the years, and thank you for your time and all the best for the future. Um, Christopher, what else is around? I mean, there's been so much this week, hasn't there? I, I, I hesitate to think what might be around the corner. Uh, well, what's around the corner, actually, is a new director from uh, taking over from Mike. Ah, yes. Uh, uh, Do enlighten. Karen Von A Hippel. mate of yours, I believe. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah I suppose so. Uh, Karen Von Hippel, uh, an American State Department world expert on counterterrorism, and in fact ran the State Department's Timely, uh, people. Then. Timely, but uh, a good brain, very good brain, and will continue the sort of thing that Mike Clark started, and that is economic and uh, discipline in an organisation, otherwise it fades, but also academic uh, a discipline, otherwise nobody will listen to it, and I think that's what she'll do. Uh, yeah. Next week's interesting, yeah, by the way. It should be, shouldn't it? <laughs> it should be interesting next week. Uh, uh, apart from anything else, we'll get the vote. We'll get the vote uh, that will concern it bombing does seem in Syria. A, it does seem like it's pretty much a, a fait accompli. Well, it's a, it, it, there's a sort of inevitability about it, uh, and there are no people marching in the streets about it. It's quite interesting how you haven't had a huge amount of protest within newspapers generally saying that uh, that uh, David Cameron is right. The only off note I've heard is people saying, look at Cameron, then go back and look at Blair. Mm. It's the same path. And Cameron's got... I think that's got, you saying that, isn't it? Probably not. <laughs> uh, Cameron's got four years to patch up a legacy. Mm. And this is it. And that is all we have time for this week. You can tweet us your thoughts on the programme at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the pod- podcast. Do join us again at the same time next week. But from me, Kate Jovo, thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon. Bye-bye. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2.